KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, COVID remains the number three cause of death in the United States after heart disease and cancer, with almost 3,000 deaths every week. But Biden and the Democrats are ending the COVID emergencies. The COVID emergency in California ended on February 28th. The federal law allowing people to stay on Medicaid is about to expire. And the last day of federal emergency COVID funding will be May 11th. Is ending the COVID emergency really a good idea? Greg Gonsalves doesn't think so. He's the nation's public health correspondent and a professor of epidemiology at Yale. We'll speak with him later in the show. Also, Sunday is Oscar night in America. And as usual, we have a lot of complaints about the nominations. So does John Powers. He's critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. We'll talk about this year's films we didn't like and some we thought were wonderful. And we'll have another episode of Your Minnesota Moment. Today, the story of the Japanese temple bell that ended up in Duluth. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, the big news this week is that Joe Biden announced his new budget will propose a tax increase on wealthy people to keep Medicare solvent until 2050. He's sounding a little like Bernie when he talks about uh, income inequality here. He is. And, you know, Biden has always, uh, at least since he started running for president in 2019, said he would never raise taxes on people making less than $400,000 a year. And he has abided by that pledge. But what he wants to do, obviously, is contrast his way of uh, preserving, as it were, Medicare with the Republicans' plan to cut it around the edges, uh, death by a thousand cuts, raising the age, uh, curtailing what uh, the benefits could cover, and so on and so forth. And, you know, it uh, viewed both from a policy standpoint and a political standpoint, it's a damn good move by, on, on Biden's part. The one surprise to me in the uh, announcement that he made was what he said about bringing down medic uh, medical costs in America. This is another one of our perennial themes. Medicine is too, ex medical care is too expensive in America. But he said that Obamacare has actually succeeded in bringing down the medical costs for, you know, tens of millions of people. And the result is that the date at which Medicare will become insolvent has gone further into the future, thanks to him and Obama. Well, yes, I mean, the uh, CBO and others estimated a long time ago that it would become insolvent in uh, 2017. And uh, by offering uh, more insurance to, uh, uh, to more Americans and fewer visits, therefore, to the ER and things like that, that has now been extended by the same agency to 2028. And of course, what Biden wants to do is build on that, partly doing something which has only begun uh, under his presidency, which is beginning to uh, negotiate what Medicare pays for certain prescription drugs. And his plan assumes an expansion of more than 10 drugs subject to negotiation. And uh, it also includes the uh, newly enacted, as of last year, provision that companies cannot raise 
the price of a medication higher than the rate of inflation. So all of that is a very uh, significant way of bringing down uh, the cost to Medicare without not only without harming uh, Medicare recipients, but actually it's a win-win for everyone but the drug companies and uh, the drug companies are doing just fine. So that's okay. So where does this leave Kevin McCarthy? Originally, they were going to go after Medicare as a bargaining chip in in this debt limit battle. And then lots of people, including Donald Trump, said you better not do that because Medicare is too popular. What's Kevin uh, McCarthy got left? Well, the, the, I think the two backup positions, which historically the Republicans have uh, pursued, is reducing spending on Medicaid. Poor and, people. Uh, which, poor which people. People of modest means or virtually no means and reducing spending on food stamps. Now, the Republicans tried to go after Medicaid before. The problem is that there are 91 million Americans on Medicaid, and a lot of them vote Republican. So, you know, it was one thing when the Republicans could say, ah, well, it just affects, you know, Blacks and Latinos. Well, it affects a lot of their base voters, too. All of this rural, white, uh, working class uh, constituency, which is in many ways the backbone of the party, uh, a lot of them are on Medicaid, um, you know, and then, you know, just the appearances of going after that and or food stamps when Biden is is simply proposing to fund projects by taxing, taxing the wealthy. I, I think the Biden people have concluded, uh, as they did when McCarthy initially said Medicare and Social Security were on the table, the Biden people have concluded that if this is the, the battle they want to fight, boy, we welcome it. Well, next topic I want to talk about is uh, Fox News this week. Seems to be getting worse, if that's possible. Tucker Carlson on Monday night broadcast his selection of footage of the insurrection of January 6th. That's the footage given to him by Speaker Kevin McCarthy. He recast the attack as what he said was, quote, an orderly and meek, close quote, procession of curious sightseers who were rightfully upset with how the election had been conducted. Orderly and meek, how'd you like that? Yeah, well, one of the interesting uh, reactions to this is most of the Republican senators have already repudiated this. Mitch McConnell held up a letter from the head of the Capitol Police saying this is pernicious nonsense and completely untrue. And a hundred of our officers were injured. Yes, to which... Kevin McCarthy and uh, his ilk seem to be basically indifferent uh, as a way of cultivating uh, the Trumpian base. On the one hand, it kind of gives assurance to the lunatics on the far right that if they do this again, at least Fox News will treat them well. But, you know, also certainly raises the prospect of uh, orderly and meek demonstrations against Fox News. Uh, You know, uh, I have long... Uh, supported deporting uh, Rupert Murdoch as the uh, single most uh, <laughs> noxious immigrant in American history. So, you know, I, I, I think all of that. I mean, the revelations coming out about Fox are just, I mean, they're not really surprising, but they are, you know, to anyone who remotely took them seriously, just calamitous. Yes. And nevertheless, Tucker Carlson continued on this right. Monday show to spread lies about not just what happened on January 6th, but what happened in the November election. Here's what he said. 
quote, the protesters were angry. They believed that the election they had just voted in had been unfairly conducted, and they were right, close quote. And they were right, Tucker Carlson says. And he added, without saying anything more about it, quote, in retrospect, it is clear the 2020 election was a grave betrayal of American democracy. Given the facts that have since emerged about that election, no honest person can deny it, close quote, Tucker Carlson. Well, some of the facts that have emerged, as you've said, are what we've learned about Tucker Carlson's own text messages to his staff and other Fox News personnel, which we've learned from this Dominion voting machine lawsuit. Tucker Carlson ridiculed privately Trump's claims about a plot to steal the election. He called Trump's claims, quote, shockingly reckless and absurd. And he wrote to one of his producers, the whole thing seems insane to me. And then he told his producers, we are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. I truly can't wait. I hate him passionately, close quote. What do you make of this? Then let's consider why he aired this uh, pernicious lie nonsense on uh, the, the last couple nights. And, and it's almost as if he wants to tell the Trump base, hey, we still love you. I know I said some stuff about Trump on that you may have read this in the news, although right wing media is not covering the Dominion lawsuit revelations. But, you know, I still love you guys even if I hate Trump passionately. So, um, I mean, I'm just trying to parse yeah. what this is, what this is about. And one of the things that comes becomes clear in the revelations of uh, this, uh, the private messages that uh, Carlson and Hannity and Ingram and others were sending around is that while they knew it was a lie, Carlson in particular was very concerned that it was hurting the Fox brand to say that Biden had actually won and that the stock was dropping, you know, and I'm sure literally, you know, this literally, he's talking not just the moral stock or the no, political stock, no, the they, stock no, price they, on the yeah. stock exchange. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't doubt that Carlson gets stock options as part of his yeah. pay. And uh, he was concerned that Fox News reporters who were coming too close to reporting actual truth were damaging, you know, and, and he and others stomped on them. Uh, for telling the truth uh, in uh, in the messages that the, the Dominion lawsuit has now made public. So what's at stake in this Dominion voting machines uh, lawsuit against Fox News is they're trying to show that the Fox primetime announcers had a, quote, reckless disregard for the truth, which is the legal standard that requires that they pay damages for ruining the business of Dominion voting machines. Rupert Murdoch himself was deposed, and in sworn testimony, he was asked whether he had ever believed there was, quote, massive fraud, close quote, in the 2020 election. And Murdoch replied with a one-word answer, no. Doesn't this, on its face, show that Fox News had a reckless disregard for the truth, that they knew it was false, that what they were reporting, and, and nevertheless, they went ahead? If I can be as succinct as Murdoch was, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. So on the one hand, we have the House Republicans who are cheering for Tucker Carlson and who want to stick with the Trump story that Biden didn't win the 2020 election. And then we have the Senate Republicans who are, quote, ready to move on. Trump, of course, is very 
concerned about this divide. He denounced Murdoch this week uh, in a tweet on his own site, Truth Social. Trump called Murdoch, quote, a mega-hating globalist rhino, close quote. Could you translate that for our listeners? Yeah, that means he has uh, pissed off Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> uh, hates the Trump uh, Make America Great shtick. He has media outlets in multiple Anglophone countries, and he's a Republican in name only, hence rhino. But what it means is he's pissed off Trump. So can we conclude that going into the 2024 presidential primary season, the Republicans are divided? Yeah, well, let, let's look at this the immediate division on uh, what Carlson is doing. You know, House Republicans, most of them come from very, very safe gerrymandered Republican districts. And there is always an incentive to move further to the right, because the only electoral challenge you're ever going to get is a Republican primary challenger to their right. Uh, you know, senators can't jerry. I mean, you know, the, the, in a sense, the Senate is our primordial gerrymander, giving as many votes <laughs> and to Wyoming yet. as it does to California. But those those boundaries are fixed and they have to win elections in states where people disagree with them. So, I mean, that that partly accounts for the difference in terms of programmatic differences between a Ron DeSantis, say, and a Donald Trump. They're, they're really not very great. Um, and the other political news of the week, which I find very interesting, is that uh, a bill to uh, outlaw abortions after six weeks is now moving through the Florida, Florida legislature. And uh, DeSantis, who is no dummy, understands there's some peril here. But, you know, to win the Republican nomination, he may well have to support it, even though it would probably cost him the general election. So, you know. As Donald Rumsfeld didn't quite say, you go to war with the party you have, and the party <laughs> you have is uh, the advocate of some extremely unpopular positions. So we've talked about the Republicans. Now it's time to talk about the Democratic ticket in 2024. Right now, the plan is to campaign for the reelection of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. But, well, but what? Well, there, there's a particular complexity and handicap built in to uh, seeking uh, to be president up to your age 86. That kind of enables the other party to say, well, look, I mean, is he going to is, is he going to be up to the job? Uh, what if he kicks the bucket? And since what if he kicks the bucket is not usually a factor in presidential campaigns when it is when we have just the example of this time around, it places much greater scrutiny on the vice presidential nominee. And Kamala Harris is not by any means one of the most popular figures in American politics. Quite could, I just, could I just cite one fact on this, yes. court, which I have mentioned a few times before. Kamala Harris entered the Democratic primaries in 2019, hoping to become the presidential candidate in 2020. And she appeared in many of the debates. We saw her up there on the stage. Let us remember, how many delegates did she win in the Democratic primaries? How many votes did she get? Zero. Zero is the answer. Her campaign was such a fizzle 
that she was compelled to drop out before there were any primaries or caucuses held. In essence, she dropped out in 2019, didn't even so, make it to 2020. So not a single Democrat voted for her in the 2020 uh, primaries. This makes me worried about her as an important person on the ticket in 2024. And, and there's a new California poll out earlier this week that shows her popularity even in her home state is, shall we say, limited. So it is a problem. But it is also a problem for Biden not to run with her. She is, after all, the first woman and the first African-American to be vice president. So if ever there was a damned if you do, damned if you don't uh, situation, it's, it's uh, Biden's the what to do with Kamala issue. So what is Biden to do? Well, either he just grits his teeth and keeps her on the ballot, or he tries to, you know, maybe let the convention delegates decide. And there's some precedent for that. In 1944, two of the three major uh, pillars of the Democratic Party, the South and the big city bosses, desperately wanted to get rid of uh, his sitting vice president, Henry Wallace. And could we just review the health of FDR in 1944? The health of FDR in 1944 was declared by his uh, own physician, Howard Brune, to be absolutely terrible and not not suggesting he could he could last that much longer. But it's not really clear that even had this been widely known, I mean, it was not widely known at all. This was a closely kept secret. And, I, and the uh, uh, those two wings of the Democratic Party just wanted to get rid of Henry Wallace, whom they saw as too far left, maybe even a communist sympathizer and into some mysticism stuff that they were skeptical about. The third pillar of the Democratic Party, Labor, wanted to keep him because he was very good on those issues, but that wasn't enough. So Roosevelt essentially told the bosses and the Southerners, okay, go ahead, pick, uh, pick someone else for vice president of the convention. Now, uh, could Biden sort of do that? Yeah, Roosevelt also had to give something significant to Henry Wallace so he wouldn't walk away uh, entirely steamed, and he uh, made him his Secretary of Commerce. I suppose uh, that Biden could offer, well, I mean, the best thing he could offer uh, Harris would be, you know, a Supreme Court seat, but there's absolutely no guarantee one will come open. That failing Secretary of State, maybe Attorney General, I should have included that in the thing I wrote about this, I, I neglected to say. Other than that, I don't see what he can do. And even if he does that, I mean, it becomes Getting rid of Wallace, Wallace wasn't a first woman. He wasn't the first black. He was uh, not not even the first guy from Iowa who had been <laughs> vice president. So this is this is higher stakes. But again, it's higher stakes either way, which makes this a particularly naughty problem for uh, the Democrats. You say in 1944 they kept it a secret that Roosevelt was basically dying. He didn't look yeah. good. Anybody, if you looked at the pictures of him, he oh, looks yeah. bad. Yeah. But yeah. was there not a president who did get sick in office and ran for re-election? Yes. And I forgot to put that in my uh, piece. <laughs> that was uh, Dwight Eisenhower, who suffered a heart attack in the third year of his first term, 1955, raising the possibility that he would be succeeded by Richard Nixon. But he ran again, and I, I got an email today from one of your uh, American historian colleagues, Michael Kazin, who pointed out to me that the Stevenson campaign, ever decorous, uh, did not make an issue 
of Ike's health and the possible uh, ascent of Richard Nixon, whereas we can be absolutely certain the Republicans will make an issue of Joe Biden's age and the looming specter of Kamala Harris if she's still on the ticket. For news of the next looming specter, we turn to Harold Meyerson on a regular basis. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. I'm on looming specter alert. Uh, Good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The official COVID emergency is ending. The COVID emergency in California ended on February 28th, and at the end of next month, the federal law allowing people to stay on Medicaid will expire. The last day of the federal emergency COVID funding will be May 11th. Is this really a good idea? For comment, we turn to Greg Gonsalves. He works on epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. He's been an AIDS activist for 30 years, and he writes regularly for The Nation about the pandemic. He's also a 2018 MacArthur Fellow. Greg, welcome back. Hi, John. Glad to be here. You've said numbers don't lie. I looked up the numbers. COVID remains the number three cause of death in the United States, exceeded only by heart disease and cancer. About 3,000 people die of COVID in the United States every week. The weekly total for new cases last week was about 260,000. At the beginning of the pandemic, you criticized the government, of course, headed by Trump at that time, for not taking action during a health crisis. Now you have a new criticism. When President Biden got elected or, or when he campaigned for the, for the job, he said, I'd follow the science and implication was that he was going to be different than President Trump in his response to the pandemic. And all signs were good for the first few months, but I think there was a political imperative which overrode sort of common sense about public health and that um, people were tired already as he began his term uh, of all the restrictions and all the sort of claims being made on them. And he decided to turn the corner. Not that the virus was cooperating, but he decided it was time to put COVID behind us. And so by the summer of 2021, you know, he talked about our independence from COVID for for July 2021. And, you know, by the end of 2021 into 2022, really all they could talk about was it being a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And there was really little talk of masks or ventilation or a a whole host of other things we might do to keep ourselves safe. Um, It was all about your personal choice to get vaccinated. If you didn't do it, you're you're almost a bad American. But the virus hasn't cooperated. Um, As you've described, the the death toll in the United States has been consistently um, about 400, 500 deaths per day over the past few weeks, meaning we have a 9-11 every week or so. Um, And so we are in a situation where nobody really cares about the pandemic, including the folks in the White House, yet death and suffering persist. The rationale officially given for ending the federal COVID emergency by Biden's National COVID Response Coordinator was that we are, quote, in a better place and that we, quote, are getting through the winter without a big surge and that, quote, 
we have the tools to manage this crisis, close quote. I think you agree that we have the tools, vaccines, Paxlovid. The tools aren't the problem. Well, first of all, Dr. Jha has a very short memory because if you remember around Christmas time, we were talking about the triple-demic of RSV, flu, and, and COVID. And our emergency rooms and our hospitals were sagging under the weight of, of three, three diseases that were, were sending people to the hospitals in droves. We still have um, hospital capacity issues going into January. So the idea that we didn't see a surge is not true. Did we see a surge of the, the kind we saw the winter before when Omicron hit? Of course we didn't. But to say there was not a pileup in hospitals in the end of 2022 going into 2023 is, is incorrect. We do have the tools. We have vaccines, we have Paxlovid and other treatments. We have tests to, to, to tell if you're infected with the virus, but you know we don't have equitable access to it. First of all, we have very low booster rates in the United States. Um, we already know that access to Paxlovid uh, is not what anybody wants, including the administration. Um, and it's getting harder and harder to reach those tools. You know, if you have the resources and you have health insurance in particular, you know, you're, you're pretty well set up to get what you need. But again, many, many people have said vaccine-only approaches are not sufficient to control the pandemic. Even as late as November of last year, a group in Nature magazine, which is no sort of, you know, partisan outlet, it's a, one of the leading scientific magazines in the world, published a consensus statement from around 400 scientists, clinicians, and public health experts saying, you know what, you need a comprehensive approach to the virus that combines all the things we've been talking about, non-pharmaceutical interventions, environmental controls like changing ventilation in, in buildings and in public transportation, in addition to vaccines, tests, and treatment. But everybody is basically saying, if you can afford to get your, your shot, if you can afford to, to figure out how to get Paxlovid and you can get tested and you can afford to stay home when you're sick, maybe you'll weather the storm, but that's not even true. We know that long COVID, even if some of the estimates are overstated, still is going to affect millions and millions of Americans, which both has economic costs and physical costs for people in terms of long-term disability that are going to persist into the years ahead. Let's go back a step. The first declaration of a national COVID emergency came in March 2000, two months after Biden took office. What did it mean to declare a COVID emergency and how adequate was that initial declaration of Biden's? The COVID emergency allowed the government to do certain things. Um, one is it allowed regulatory flexibility and access to Medicare and Medicaid for millions of Americans. It allowed us to approve vaccines and other interventions on emergency use authorizations. It, it put into place provisions for telehealth um, for people who couldn't simply get to see a doctor even if they had the ability to, to pay for it. Um, and so there were a whole bunch of regulatory flexibilities put into place at the beginning of the pandemic, which will now get lifted uh, in May when, when the pandemic emergency ends. Also in the beginning, all 50 states issued their own COVID emergency declarations. But of course, in the red states where Republicans rule, those emergency declarations were allowed to expire. For example, Florida let its expire in June 2021. Since then, the death rate from COVID in Florida has been double that of California, where the emergency is still in effect. So I guess that state policies, as well as federal, were critical to keeping people alive or letting them die of COVID. Well, I have no love for Governor DeSantis, but let's talk about Governor Hochul in New York State, who lifted the mask mandate in healthcare facilities last week or two weeks ago. Eric Adams, who's the mayor of New York City, one of the bluest cities you can get, lifting the vaccine requirement for, for workers, city workers, um, including public 
public facing professions like education and healthcare. And so, you know, while some of the red states might have led the way in sort of dropping provisions to, to protect their, their citizens and residents from, from COVID-19, blue states have sort of followed the lemmings off the cliff in terms of backing away from pandemic protections, even as we speak. Your article for The Nation highlights another feature that I didn't know about, and I think most people don't know about. At the end of March, states will kick people off Medicaid. Do we know how many people this is going to be and and what will happen to them and their health coverage? What's interesting is that not tied to the, the end of the public health emergency, in the final budget reconciliation package at the end of last year, the House leader Nancy Pelosi, the majority leader in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, along with the White House, decided to to rescind, as of March, this ability to let people can be continuously enrolled in Medicaid under the emergency provisions um, that were established earlier early in the pandemic. Kaiser Family Foundation is fantastic because they have a lot of briefs on their website um, at kff.org about what happens when when the public health emergency ends and when the continuous enrollment provision Medicaid ends. They were saying several million people are, are going to lose their uh, access to Medicaid. And what's interesting is, is in, in other studies, when people lose access to Medicaid, it isn't that they, they jump onto some other form of insurance. They end up being uninsured for, for a, a year or so. And so what we're seeing is that we're going to see the end of the public health emergency, which has made it much easier to get test treatments, vaccines through Medicare and Medicaid, the entire sort of package of emergency provisions, including the continuous enrollment in, in Medicaid, has put millions of people on, into the health insurance world. Fairly a third of Americans were covered by Medicaid over the past three years. We're not going to have the federal government paying for, for certain parts of, of our toolbox of, of interventions for, for COVID-19 under these new, this brave new world after the pan, pandemic health emergency. And, um, and for those who had insurance, um, they're unlikely to to, to find ways to get get insured over the over the next few weeks and months as they scramble to figure out an alternative to their Medicaid enrollment, as states can now sort of boot them off even as as early as next month. California has a has a better situation than nationally. The state recently passed at least two laws. One forces insurers to keep covering COVID care, Paxlovid mostly even after the state and and federal emergency orders expire. And a second new state law in California requires insurers to keep reimbursing members' costs for up to eight over-the-counter COVID tests per month. And this has an expiration date of November 11th. So there's, you know, six more months to go in California of free test kits and requiring insurance companies to cover uh, COVID care. And if you're in California, you're you're in good shape. But how many of those states are going to follow through with sort of new provisions to lock in um, easier access to these interventions uh, once the public health emergency ends? And also remember what's important to say is that these tools, vaccines, Paxlovid and other treatments and tests are not everything we need to keep ourselves safe. I had COVID once late in, in, in 2022, I do not want it again. Um, the risk of, of long COVID notwithstanding, it, it's a disruption to our lives. It's a disruption to those we love and those who may be high risk in our, in our families and friendship networks. And so even in what California is, is doing and, and, and it should be praised, the climate of risk out there right now with mask mandates lifting, you know, we need to upgrade ventilation in our buildings and in, in public transportation, none of it's really happening. Um, and so 
as we're seeing the public health emergency evaporate, the Medicaid provision evaporating next month, we've also seen sort of all these things undergirding our, our protection from risk sort of evaporating one by one as red states, blue states, all states sort of drop mask mandates, vaccine mandates, et cetera, uh, creating much more risk out there for the long term. And then there's Moderna and Pfizer, producers of the, the good vaccines. What's, what are they going to do with the end of the federal emergency? Well, it's interesting because um, when I wrote the article for The Nation, you know, both of them had said, gee, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. We're going to increase <laughs> the price of the vaccine by 400 percent price gouging for our times. The interesting thing is Moderna, of course, had billions of dollars from the U.S. government to help develop that vaccine. So it's your, it's your vaccine and my vaccine, along with Moderna's. And, um, you know, the White House has been hemming and hawing, but really did did nothing to sort of pressure Moderna to, to or Pfizer to do anything different. Moderna has, has said, oh, you know, we're going to, I think recently has said, you know, we'll continue to supply things at cost, you know, for those who need it, et cetera. Um, the, the point is, is that what were they even thinking? You know, <laughs> what were they even thinking to, to boost prices by 400% when it's already an expensive vaccine to begin with? It really takes a lot of chutzpah to raise the price by 400% in the middle of a pandemic, just as public protections and public support and subsidies for these tools are, 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 are evaporating into thin air. And just for a minute, we'd like to talk about the situation outside the United States. How does the death rate in the United States, even with the federal mandate in effect, compare with other advanced countries? And what about the countries that aren't so advanced? COVID is the number three leading cause of death worldwide. It's still incredibly, incredibly deadly around the world. We have millions of cases, millions of deaths. In terms of excess deaths per capita and COVID mortality per capita, the U.S. is up at the top of the leaderboard with its G7 peers. So we do terribly, even with the tools that Dr. Jha says we have at our disposal, even under the protests that things are a lot better than they were. We're still having among the most deadly epidemics still into year four of this pandemic. When you look at the rest of the world, you know, we have vast numbers of people, billions of people who are unvaccinated around the world. And we see excess deaths and COVID mortality reaching those places as well. What's interesting is that um, it's hard to tell because of COVID reporting what's going on in many different places, but it doesn't seem like rich countries like the U.S., uh, middle-income countries like Brazil, you know, more advanced upper middle income countries like China are being protected by the virtue of vaccination. We're seeing, you know, excess mortality persist, COVID mortality persist into year four, just as sort of people's interest and political will has evaporated to, to combat this pandemic. Greg Gonsalves, you can read his article, Biden's ending of the COVID emergency is a public health disaster at thenation.com. Greg, thanks for talking with us today. I always love talking with you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. This Sunday is Oscar night in America. And as usual, we have a lot of complaints about the nominees. For that, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large on the NPR show Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he has an audience of something like 
5 million people. He worked for 25 years as a critic and columnist, first for the LA Weekly, then Vogue. And his work has also appeared in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and The Nation. John, welcome back. Glad to be here. Well, there's lots to complain about. I'd like to start by complaining about the nominees for Best Picture. My biggest complaint, I think, is about The Fablemans, Steven Spielberg's story of how he started making movies as a kid. You can tell from the very first scene, the family is going to see the 1953 film, The Greatest Show on Earth, that this is not going to be a good movie. Or am I being too harsh? No, no, it's not a good movie. I mean, I mean, by the time I caught up with it, because I got to it a little late, I had I had known that there were these great reviews for it. And I thought almost every single scene in the film was untrue. You know, and it, it was, in a way that I was surprised by, much more of a vanity production than I expected to be, because the film is unremittingly dull. And the only reason why it would be some of the scenes would be considered to be of interest is that at the end they produce the genius who made this film. Yes. <laughs> and so and so it's one of the ironies that in telling the story of how he became the genius who made the film, he made, I think, one of his very worst films. <laughs> Great. Because he had told the story, essentially some version of his psychological family life in things like E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and lots of other things. And because they were sublimated, Rather than direct, they have much more emotional power. Whereas the Fablemans, you're just like, Eva, Diva, you know, what is he doing? Some of the phoniest anti-Semitism I've ever seen in a movie. If you lived through it, how could you do such a fake version of it? <laughs> I think it's a bad movie. I don't think it's just like, shouldn't be the best picture nominee. I, I would have given it a bad review. Well, my second complaint about the Best Picture nominations is The Banshees of Inish Sheeran. This is the story about the tiny island in Ireland in 1923. And spoiler alert, a man who cuts off his own fingers because he's mad at his best friend. What the heck? What is this about? I think this film works only as an allegory of Ireland in the 20th century, the self-destructive violence between Catholics and Protestants. But I don't think cutting off your own fingers is really the right metaphor for the IRA's fight against the Brits. I mean, they did win an independent nation in 1921, and they made peace with Northern Ireland in 2006. Or, or am I being too harsh about this movie? I don't think you are. It's a, a quaint little movie with some violent pretensions, you know, and filled with, filled with every Irish cliche that you, you could ever want. <clears throat> the argument that's always made for him is that he's self-consciously deploying Irish cliches. It's so that when the animals come into the house, he doesn't really think Ireland's that way. It's the mythic Ireland. What I think the film's about, that only makes sense to me, is that it's about being an artist in Ireland. Because the guy who cuts off his finger, you know, you know it plays music. And the other guy is a relentlessly dull, boring person. And like there's the whole tradition in Ireland, you know, starting with Joyce and all the rest, of the sense that you have to almost maim yourself to, to be an artist yes. you, you know, when you're surrounded, surrounded by this. Nevertheless, I'm flabbergasted people think it's so, you know, that it's good enough to be that. I do want to stop complaining for a minute to talk about the best international film nominees, especially the Polish entry, EO, made by Jerzy Skolomowski. Manola Dargis, film critic for the New York Times, says EO is not just the best foreign film, yeah. the best of all films, period. Yeah. The film already won the jury prize at Cannes. 
you are a Skolomovsky guy. Who is he and who is Io? Skolomovsky is a Polish guy who was a contemporary of Roman Polanski's. He grew up as a child during during the war. His father was killed as part of the Polish resistance. His mother was one of the, was one of the Poles who actually did house Jewish people, and so he, he came from a kind of cussed, feisty family. You know, he began making these movies in the 1960s. Then they're, they're ex exceedingly good. Then got chased out of Poland for making over, overly political films, and wound up in the West where he made some that maybe people might have seen. His most famous one, maybe in America, is called Moonlight. Moonlighting with Jeremy Irons, which is a wonderful little movie. You have a chance to see it. He made a, a teen movie called Deep End, which I think is maybe the greatest teen movie of all times. So <laughs> it's a brilliant, I mean, so I think it's a brilliant work of art. I, I think one of the great movies. Um, and then he kind of disappeared for a while he, as he got older and older. He, and then about when he was about 70, he kind of reemerged and began making these interesting movies. The new one, EO, is basically you just follow a donkey who is cut loose from a circus and you just watch him wander around experiencing the world from a, more from a donkey's point of view and just looking at the world through the big eyes of a donkey that <laughs> doesn't really judge anything, but makes you think it's judging things because the eyes are so big, so we're doing the judgment. What's remarkable about the movie is that it gives, I guess, the animal more integrity as a living creature whose stories of value than almost any film I've ever seen. There's an earlier version by you know, Robert Bresson called Ozar Baltazar, which is a similar story. And clearly Skolomovsky's riffing on that. It felt when I was watching, like I was watching a young punk's amazing tour de force film about a donkey. You know, some 25 year old who thought, Bresson's great, but I'm as great as that. I'm gonna make my own donkey movie. And I'm going to show you what it's like to be a donkey. And I'm going to use color filters. And I'm going to have amazing music. And it's just going to wander around. And you're going to gradually get a picture of what, of what the culture is like in Europe that you're seeing. And it's going to lead to a bad end. Because every story about a donkey, I think, always leads to a bad end. Certainly, the Bresson film leads to a bad end. And almost every film about animals leads to a bad end. Even Old Yeller. Even Old Yeller. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and we need to say a few words about the nominations for documentaries. The favorite seems to be Laura Poitras's film about the art world activism of Nan Golden, who went after the Sackler family, whose company sold OxyContin, to get their name taken off of the various galleries that museums have put up in uh, with their money. The film is called all the beauty and yeah. all the bloodshed. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of Laura Poitras's latest? Well, I liked it less well than most people did. It's wedding together two strands, the, the, the Nan Golden fighting against Oxycontin, you know, and, and trying to get the Sackler name off museums. And then also the story of her career. The story of her career is an interesting career. I mean, and, you know, you know she's, she's a great photographer. And in fact, the story of the Oxycontin is great. What's interesting is that I don't think it meshes together as well as people seem to think. Almost everyone I've talked to says the most touching part of the film has to do with the HIV and, and the whole AIDS crisis that she lived through with all her friends. And the Oxycontin, even though that's the, supposedly the center of the film and has ravished millions and millions of lives of people who aren't artists, who live in small town Kentucky, that part isn't felt in the same way. It's not that it's a terrible film at all. It's just I think it's somehow being overpraised because you're piggybacking both on the fame of Nan Golden and at the same time, people who like it get to feel good about themselves because they feel like they too are fighting against the Sacklers. 
And this is, it's not a bad film, but I do think there are better films. Well, let me mention one. My favorite nominee for Best Documentary is All That Breathes. That's the one about two brothers in the slums of Delhi who rescue injured birds. It's an amazing movie. It is a, a genuinely amazing movie that fills you with both hope and despair at the same yeah. time. The despair is that so many birds are falling from the sky in, in Delhi and elsewhere, partly because of just the poisonous atmosphere. And the Delhi you see is not a, not a lovely, beautiful place. But it is a place filled with animal life. And here you have these guys who, from their youth, their dedication is to saving and looking after creatures because they breathe. So it's all that breathes, in, and, and that means you should be looking after and tending to and caring for the world. And these brothers spend years and years and years going out every day and doing this with, with no great compensation except the, the moral satisfaction of doing it and their love of the birds. And what I like about it, as, as distinct from, say, the Nan Golden film, is that you actually had to go out into the world and meet people who weren't famous and then make them interesting. And in fact, they do that. And, and, and the story of the brothers, the gradual division that emerges between the brothers is itself interesting. So it's, it's interesting at every level, incredibly well shot. And the kites, because it's a particular kind of, you know, the, the birds are just majestic creatures. You know, and so you see them in their majesty and their pain. The and kite, let me just say, the kite is a kind of hawk kind that of hawk. is very, of which there are thousands and thousands in mm -hmm. Delhi because they feed on the on the garbage dumps. On the garbage, you know, and the rats and all this. And it's an, a beautiful, wonderful movie. Well, now it's time to talk about the blacklist and the Oscars. Well, I can hear your mouth watering already, John. <laughs> <laughs> this year is the 75th anniversary of the Hollywood blacklist a key chapter in the history of the Oscars and a key chapter in a wonderful new book about the history of the Oscars called Oscar Wars by Michael Shulman. Blacklisted people were banned not only from making movies, but from, from being nominated in the Oscar competition. In case some of our listeners don't quite remember how this all worked. The House Un-American Activities Committee claimed it needed to uncover communist infiltration in the film industry at the end of the 40s and into the 50s. They held hearings where they asked people the most famous question of the 50s, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And then they asked a second question. They required everyone to name the names of people they knew who were members of the Communist Party. If you refused to answer the first, you were blacklisted. If you said you'd talk about your own politics, but you weren't going to rat on your friends, you'd still be blacklisted. And if you said the First Amendment, protection of freedom of speech, meant the committee's questions were unconstitutional, if you did that, you'd go to prison for the crime of contempt of Congress. And 10 people did. Of course, there was a Communist Party in Hollywood, and they did write and direct uh, uh, movies and act in movies. My favorite example is the World War II film Tender Comrades, right. about four women working in a defense plant and sharing a small house. And the star Ginger Rogers says, quote, share and share alike, that's democracy, close quote. This line was written by Dalton Trumbo, directed in a movie by Edward Dimitrik. Both of these people were Reds. Yeah. And that line was cited as an example of how the communists have infiltrated uh, Hollywood films. But even, here's the key, even after the blacklist went in, into effect, some blacklisted writers kept working using pseudonyms or fronts. And because they were talented people, some of the movies they wrote 
under other people's names, were nominated for and won Oscars in 1956. This came to a head when The Brave One won the Oscar for Best Story, and the writer named was Robert Rich, somebody nobody had ever heard of, and he didn't show up to pick up his Oscar. What's the story of the 1956 Oscar for Best Story? To start with, the film was written by Dalton Trumbo, I think perhaps you know, the most prolific of all the Black Mr. Writers, an impressive screenwriter with a long history who did lots and lots of famous movies. As you say, these people were talented, you know, and they made movies that people, they wrote movies that people liked, you know, and also a lot of people, I think, along the way knew the Blacklist was BS. And so therefore would, would, would kind of try to do workarounds as long as they didn't get in trouble themselves. In this case, Trumbo wrote the thing about a boy and a bull. It's not a good movie. But at the time, you know, they had to, they had to put a, na a name on the credit and they put the name Robert Rich who is the nephew of the King brothers, who are the producers of, of, of the film. The problem was once it was announced, everybody had to know who Robert Rich was. Then the nephew had to come out and say, no, it, it, it wasn't me. I just, I, I, I think I just work in the office there. It was one of those breakthrough cases that you came along the way. Trumbo's analysis of how, of how to do stuff is to win these Oscars under pseudonyms and then have the question raised, who is, who is the person actually? Because then the absurdity of the fact that they're still working and in fact people think they're good and what they're doing is not harmful to the country. You like their films, America likes their films, and nobody can see any communist threat to it. You know, it was his his plan and eventually it worked. At some point there were just so many blacklisted writers who were winning awards that in fact they got embarrassed. Really the first time this came up was when High Noon was uh, nominated, that was 1953. And now we think of High Noon, or many of us think of High Noon as an allegory about the blacklist. Yes. Nobody in town will stand up to the bad guys who've just yes. arrived, except the lonely hero, Gary Cooper. This was written by Carl Foreman, blacklisted writer, and it was nominated for seven Academy Awards. And the weird thing was that it starred Gary Cooper, who had been a friendly witness for the committee, yeah. who was all in favor of forcing people to name names. He won for Best Actor, but the winner for Best Picture in 1953 was The Greatest Show on Earth, Small World, the film that inspired Steven Spielberg, Spielberg. that opens uh, The Fablemans. A lot of people thought of, think of High Noon as kind of a, a historic, important film in Hollywood. What do you think of High Noon? I think it's not a very good film. I think it's kind of thudding and obvious. And what's interesting is the way, the way that it's not interesting, I guess, or, and, not, and not political, is that Gary Cooper, who was a reactionary, I think Gary Cooper thought, this is, a this is a great script for me. Yeah, he was right. It won him the Oscar. It, be it became a recognized classic, though I think it's, it's dull. But some of the ways that it's dull and, and kind of obvious are the things that would make it as appealing to a right-winger as it would to a, to a left-winger. You know, I'm mean, like, oh. who's not for the person who's going to stand up for justice and right in the face of the fact that, that no one else will do it, but you're doing the right thing and doing the brave heroic. That doesn't sound especially like a communist thing. You know, if you're Gary Cooper, you think, no, this is rugged individualism. What's interesting is the way that the, the complexity is because Foreman was blacklisted, High Noon then becomes a blacklist allegory in a way that it probably wouldn't have been. Then I want to just say a few words about Bridge on the River Kwai, 1957, written by 
at least two blacklisted writers, Michael Wilson and Carl Foreman, but the Oscar for the writing for best screenplay went to Pierre Boulle. Who yes. was Pierre Boulle? Pierre Boulle was a Frenchman who wrote the book, The Bridge on the River Kwai. Pierre Boulle, I think, wrote none of Bridge on the River Kwai, the, the film. The two blacklisted writers did write it, but you couldn't put their names on things. And then David Lean, the autocratic director, I think got mad at both of the, the screenwriters along the way, partly because he's autocratic and they had their own opinions. And, the, and I think it's safe to say that writers who were, who were prepared to either go to jail or leave the country because of the blacklist are not the kind of writers who are going to quietly submit to a director telling them everything. You can read about the blacklist and the Oscars in the new book, Oscar Wars by Michael Shulman. And of course, there's the award-winning history of the blacklist, Naming Names by Victor Navasky. And then there's a very good movie, The Front, starring Zero Mostel and Woody Allen. Any other closing thoughts about this year's Oscars? Well, I think what's most interesting about this year's Oscars is that it's a, going to come down to a choice between two radically different kinds of films, I think. Everything, everywhere, all at once is probably going to win because its fans are the biggest fans. Young people like it. Older members of the Academy don't like it. In contrast, the one that maybe they think is the impressive one, which is Tar, which is the complicated, smart one. Nobody went to see it very much. And I think many Oscar people don't like that either. You know, I think probably if you ask the Academy, really the one, you know, at, at some level, I think they secretly want to give it to Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> because Top Gun Maverick got people back in the theaters, made a huge amount of money. And in this town, keeping the studios in business exactly. is the very most important thing. No, it is. It got people, you know, it, it, it did that. And it took a movie that I think everybody thought was kind of a fun joke and made a better version of it. And it had, you know, it had all the people working on making the effects. I mean, it's an expensive movie. The whole industry gets rich, you know, with, with a movie like that. And if I, and probably if I were voting, you know, see, my theory is always that maybe, given you can't really choose the best film, you should choose the movie that was the movie that defined the year. And I think that if I had to choose a movie that defined that year, it was Top Gun Maverick. In, in the way that, like, you define them a historical moment, which is you're coming back out of the pandemic People are feeling a little bit better about stuff. You know, Top Gun Maverick wouldn't have been as popular if Trump was president. They wouldn't have been able to enjoy it in the same way if they thought this was America first of the of the mega kind. If they really voted for what they liked, that's what they'd vote for. John Powers, critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Thank you, John. Talk to you later. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. Of course, that's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Today, the story of the stolen Japanese temple bell that ended up in Duluth. This story begins uh, at the end of World War II and the start of the United States military occupation of Japan. One night, a gang of sailors from the heavy cruiser USS Duluth returned to their ship from shore leave in the fishing village of Ohara with a 750-pound temple bell. You might call this vandalism or theft or war booty. It was a bronze gong 
covered with ancient inscriptions and fanciful dragons. It dated from the medieval period, and the Japanese considered it a national treasure. But the captain of the USS Duluth considered it a war trophy, and he arranged to have it delivered to the ship's namesake, the city of Duluth, where the gong eventually was displayed in a park on the shore of Lake Superior. In 1951, a Japanese college professor was visiting Duluth. He went to the park and happened to see the gong, and he knew what it was, and asked the mayor to return it. Uh, The citizens of Duluth debated what to do, and eventually they did return the bell to O'Hara. And in gratitude, the Japanese delivered a full-scale replica of the bell to be displayed in the park. Fifteen Japanese dignitaries came to Duluth to rededicate the bell. In that park next to Lake Superior, a soprano sang the Japanese national anthem and then the American one. And then the mayor of Duluth and the head of the Japanese delegation jointly clanged the gong in the name of everlasting peace. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this broadcast. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Mm